it's here. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how excited you are afterward. Let's <laughs> we are privileged to study and begin a new study in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And to be biblically honest, the thought of studying the depths of this book of scripture should absolutely thrill your soul. Not thrill your soul because we're going to look at biblical prophecy and discuss the tribulational and all the millennial theories and help you see the right one. <laughs> and not just because studying the book is going to bring clarity to one of the most symbolically intense books of the scripture. And we do know, yes, that all of scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable to build us up in righteousness, prepare us. Uh, for living a righteous life. We know that to be true. The book of Revelation's in the Bible, so we know we're supposed to study it. That's not why I think it should thrill your soul. I think it should thrill your soul because that's exactly what the text of Scripture says here in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it for the time is near. It should thrill us to study this book because it's going to bring to us, if we hear it and we heed its message, profound spiritual satisfaction. Now, I recognize that the study of the book of Revelation is not always viewed with that kind of intense, satisfying joy. Some think that the blessing comes from being right in its interpretation, and there's some truth to that. Some think that the blessing might come from avoiding all the extremes that happen when people encounter this book, and there is some truth to that too. Some assume that blessing can only come to them if the one teaching it will actually agree with their theory, and that's where the blessing comes from. Well, we'll see. I really think the blessing is for everyone who is a true servant of God. That's what's promised here. Blessed are all of the bondservants of God who take in this book and hear it and then heed it. I mean, this verse alone reminds us that the book of Revelation, while containing a significant amount of truth about the future, is really intended to strengthen God's people in their present faithful living. So we don't want to forget that. Whatever God says about the future should impact you in a spiritually profound and satisfying way now. How so? How is it that knowing the future would actually help you now? Well, I mean, think about this. If the Lord was so kind as to bless all of you with a supernatural understanding that the Chiefs would actually be in the Super Bowl in this season, how significant would their loss to the Broncos be? <laughs> Not very significant. You're like, ah, it's a hiccup on the road. I know how it's going to end. I thought about using the cowboys there, but that would require so much supernatural mindset, I, I didn't use that one. This was more believable. I mean, you get it. If you know how things end, how does it impact you now? It steadies you. The pressures, the hiccups, the suffering that comes now, if you know how it's going to end, if you know how God is going to not just bring it to a conclusion, but satisfy his justice, you take everything in around you with that in mind, don't you? Yes. It gives you confidence and steadiness. Revelation is a book perfectly placed in our Bibles. There is a precise reason that it is last, and it's not just because it's difficult it is the actual culmination of all of the Bible. The finality of what we read in Genesis about creation, man's purpose, the curse, sin, the nations, God's promise for ultimate blessing is all found wrapped up in some wonderful, glorious finality in the book of Revelation. As John MacArthur recently noted, he was actually preaching on this the week my wife and I and Mark and Janet Kristiniak were at Grace Community Church. We were out there for a conference and I thought, he just preached my sermon. He stole my stuff. <laughs> but I, I loved how he said this. In Genesis, you had the commencement of heaven and earth. In Revelation, you have the consummation of heaven and earth. In Genesis, we were given the entrance of sin and the curse. In Revelation, it's the end of sin and the curse. 
In Genesis, it was the dawn of Satan and his activities. In Revelation, it is the doom of Satan and his activities. In Genesis, it was the tree of life relinquished. In Revelation, it is the tree of life regained. In Genesis, death enters. In Revelation, death exits. In Genesis, sorrow begins. In Revelation, sorrow is banished. In Genesis, paradise was lost. In Revelation, paradise is regained. But most centrally in Genesis, the Savior was promised. And in Revelation, the Savior is preeminent. It's the culmination of everything in the Scripture. Now, it's interesting, there are no direct quotations of the Old Testament to be found in the book of Revelation. Not direct quotations, but there are hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. It is filled with reference to both Old and New Testament. So to grasp the book of Revelation is really to get a grasp of your whole Bible. If you have a firm grasp of the whole of Scripture and you see all of the Scripture's implications in light of what it says about the past and how things were made and how things will end and conclude, you should be one of the most spiritually blessed, stable, satisfied persons. You know everything. One of the beauties of this book I think you're going to see as we go along is how understandable it is. I think you're actually going to be surprised as you walk through the book how clear it is. And dare I say, how simple it is to understand. Now some of you are like, yeah, that's not been my experience as I've read through it. I think you will find it to be true. So I want us to dive into this biblically rich, spiritually satisfying truth that we find in Revelation this morning. We're just going to open with the first three verses. And why the first three verses? Well, these verses are like the preface to the book. It's the preface to the book. That is, it's a preview of the background necessary to understand the rest of the book. It's here that John gives us some insight into how this book came about why it should interest us, how it should be viewed by those who read it. Even this past week, I was editing a preface to a book that I hope to put in your hands sometime after the first of the year and, and found myself writing kind of similarly. What, genis, what generated this book? What's the origin of it? Why, did, why is it produced? What's the circumstances surrounding us that give us this kind of a, a book? And so what we find in the preface to the book of Revelation is something similar. Why does John think we need to pay attention to this? That's what the first three verses are. It's the preface to the book. Now you get into verses four through eight and this will be the formal introduction that shows us many of the themes, the various themes that come about throughout the book of Revelation which we, Lord willing, will get into next Lord's Day. But this is the preface and it provides essential insights into understanding and using the message of the book of Revelation. So what do we see in this preface that will help us understand it, that will help us use it? We're going to arrange our thoughts this morning around seven different insights. Seven insights that I think are essential to understand and make use of the book of Revelation. Seven insights essential to understand and make use of, or at least to respond to this message of Revelation. What is the first insight that we find here? The theme. So look at the theme of Revelation. You see it in the very first word, the revelation. The revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of this book. But what does that mean exactly? Well, the word revelation is the Greek term apocalypsis, from which we get the English term apocalypse, apocalyptic This word, apocalypsis, is found 19 times in the New Testament. Its basic definition is to uncover something that has been hidden. You think of a great work of art, perhaps in a city square in an ancient culture where an artist is sculpting a marble statue and it's shrouded and covered from public view, and you can hear the work going on, but then one day the the cover is removed and the apocalypsis is there. The revelation is made and everyone can see the finished work. That's the idea here. It's the uncovering. That's the idea behind the word. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's an uncovering. It's an unveiling. Now, this word is used 
in that precise way a few times. It describes Jesus being unveiled as a light to the Gentiles in his first advent. That was a revelation, Jesus being unveiled to the Gentiles, Luke 2.32, or the gospel being a mystery that had been hidden for generations and now opened up and revealed, Romans chapter 16, verse 25. More directly, the word apocalypsis refers to truth that comes directly from God. That's how this word is used many times, truth that is directly given to us from God, like in Ephesians 3.3, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote in brief. How did Paul get the gospel that he wrote about and he preached? By direct revelation from God. Galatians 1.12, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation that is a direct communication from God. Paul didn't get this from people around him. He didn't make this up. It is directly from God, so it bears God's authority. It has his accuracy, and it has great intense importance because it's directly given by God himself. So that word apocalypsis refers to truth that God reveals. However, interestingly, apocalypsis describes God's future wrath as it is unveiled also. For example, Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up, listen to this, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The coming wrath of God is described as the revelation of the wrath of God. It's a period, it's a time, it's a, an event. Romans eight nineteen, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What is that? That's a future-oriented display, unveiling of the sons of God without sin in future glory, unhindered. But even more interesting is the use of this word directly related to the return of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's divine truth revealed. It has to do with the future, with the wrath of God, the sons of God being glorified. But most of the time when this word apocalypsis is used in reference to Jesus Christ, it's referring to his second coming. Just listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 1.7 You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that referring to? His coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed, that's his apocalypsis, his revelation, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's the second coming of Christ. 1 Peter 1.7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a term that refers to his second coming. First Peter 4, 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory. That's his return you may rejoice with exultation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the theme of this book is the return of Jesus Christ. You see it, look at verse seven of Revelation one. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Who is he in verse eight? He's the alpha and the omega, the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. The Almighty, you read Revelation chapter 11 and it shows the Son of Man coming in his glory. Revelation 19, he appears and he returns with the angels and executes righteous judgment. This is a book that is all about the return of Jesus Christ and that's what's meant by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some suggest that apocalypsis is a technical term for a special kind of literature that speaks of end-time events in fanciful and symbolic language similar to Jewish writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament or some second and third century writings after the New Testament. But no such technical term existed for literature like that when John wrote this. He's not using this as a technical term for literature. 
he's using this the way the other biblical writers use this to describe the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the Old Testament was an anticipation of Jesus Christ, it awaited his first and second comings. The gospel accounts record his humiliation and his incarnation when the Son of God comes to earth to pay for our sin. The epistles, we see the extension of Jesus Christ in his body, his people who are being conformed into his image. But revelation is the culmination of it all and what you find there is the exaltation of Christ in complete glory. This is when he comes and wipes every tear away and brings eternal joy. When he comes to reign and reign forever. When the priest is now the king and the crucified is now the glorified. When the humbled is now honored and when the hidden is now revealed. When the one who was cursed is now the one who is crowned. That's the book of Revelation. And it is very much a book about Jesus Christ in light of his return. Now I just went through the book and I listed ways he is described in this book and listen to his description in the book of Revelation and how it's connected to ultimate, final, glorious reality. Jesus is the one through whom peace comes, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, the one who has made us a kingdom and priest to his God, the one to whom glory and dominion belong forever and ever, the one who is coming with the clouds and whom every eye will see, even those who pierced him as well as all the tribes of the earth who will wail on account of him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. He is the Almighty, the one who is like a son of man who is in the midst of the lampstands clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white like wool, white as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His face shines like the sun in its full strength. He's the first and the last, the living one. He died and is alive forevermore. He has the keys of death and Hades. He is the son of God, is the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one will shut, and the one who shuts and no one will open, the one who is coming, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has conquered and can open the scroll in heaven. He is the one standing as a lamb who has been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, and the one before whom the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down to worship. He is the one who ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation by his blood. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. He is the one who will reign forever and ever, the one who is coming like a thief. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is coming sitting on a white horse, faithful and true who makes war in righteousness and judges the earth. On his head are many diadems and a name written on him that no one knows but himself, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He is the word of God, the one who is coming soon. That does not sound like the gospels. That doesn't sound like his anticipation in the Old Testament. That sounds like Jesus in finality, doesn't it? This book is about Jesus Christ and his return. That's its theme. A second insight into understanding the book, the source of revelation, the source. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. This book does show its contents to be a revelation of the second coming of Jesus that also comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just the object of the book of Revelation. He is also the source. He's the revealer. We know that. Revelation twenty-two sixteen says as much. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. 
Jesus is the one to whom God gave the revelation to reveal it, to show it. He's the revealer. Jesus is the one who will speak to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. It is Jesus who is the one who actually and the only one in all creation and all time who has the power and ability to break the scrolls, the seals on the scroll that unleash the rest of the book of Revelation. It's Jesus doing the revealing. But also notice it is Jesus, the revealer, as God gave to him. Now what did God give to him? The revelation. As Jesus said in his earthly incarnation, the father knows the times and the epochs. The Father knows all of this. The Father is the one who has given it now to the Son for the Son to now reveal it to us. It's the Father's plan. What was hidden in the Gospels that no one knows, we begin to know more about now because we have it in the book of Revelation. And that makes it so vitally important. If it's God's giving it, he's the source of this. There's nothing more authoritative than this book. So it really does not matter what happens in society or culture. It's not going to change what God does. He's the source of how it all ends. And again, what you find in Revelation is the summation of everything you're going to find in the whole of the biblical books that precede it. It's God finishing the writing of his own word. And it's done, it's finished. In fact, he says, you shouldn't expect any more prophecy at the end, right? If someone wants to add more prophecy to this book, they get the plagues of the book. What does that mean? Well, don't just add to Revelation, but don't add any more prophecy. You shouldn't expect there will be anything. This is the final voice of God. This is all that we need. He's the source. Everything that God started in Genesis 1 is completed here in Revelation 22. God is the source. Let's look at a third insight into the preface of Revelation. It should provide us understanding and help us to respond. Third, let's look at the purpose of Revelation. What's the purpose? Well, notice it's told to us in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is about his second coming that comes from him, that God gave to him. And what's the purpose? To show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. That's the purpose. To show his bondservants those things which must soon take place. Who are his bondservants? The term is literally the slaves of God. Three times in the book of Revelation, it actually refers to people, men who are enslaved to other people. It's also used to refer to the prophets as the bondservants of God, the slaves of God. A few times, Moses is called a bondservant in 15.3. The prophets are called bondservants of God in chapter 10, verse 7, and 11, verse 18. But most of the time, bondservants is a reference to the followers of Christ. The followers of Christ are the bondservants of God. Chapter 2, verse 20, they are my bondservants, says Jesus. The bondservants of God in chapter 7, verse 3, it's the saints, those who follow him. His bondservants, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 2, verse 5, chapter 22, verse 3, it's the, the people of God. That's the bondservants of God. This book, friends, was written for all of us. Not for the intellectual among us, not for the smart people, not for the ones who have a seminary degree, not for the ones who have read all of the intertestamental works to try to define this. No, this is written for every one of you who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his slave. And I think that should be helpful to you. You should not approach this book as if you cannot understand it. He did not write this to hide. The very word revelation means he's revealing it. He's not hiding anything from you. This is not language cloaked in such symbols that you can't know what it is. No, he's revealing this so you'll know. So you'll know. Now what is it that God the Father gave to Jesus to reveal about his return? The things, it says, to show the things which must soon take place. 
That phrase is found again in Revelation 22, verse 6, at the very end of the book. And it's really fascinating to see how many statements at the beginning are also said at the end as bookends, so that you, you really know what the book is about. Revelation 22, 6. These are the faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So everything from the beginning down to the end is about the things which must soon take place. Now what's also interesting about this phrase is that it is a phrase used in another book of the Bible that describes issues about the end. Namely, Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. You don't need to turn there, but just jot down in your notes so you can look at it later. I'm going to read them for you. But this phrase, the things which must take place and even take place soon, that phrase is found when Daniel is making a prophecy on a prophecy that culminates with the eternal kingdom of God coming in finality. Daniel 2.28 says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, what must take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. And as for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what, would, what must take place in the future. That's our language. In the Greek translation, the particular one likely used of Daniel here, it's virtually the same phrase as John uses in John 1.1. What must take place in the future? What must soon take place, John calls it. And he reveals mysteries and has made known to you what must take place. Daniel 2.45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain with hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what must take place in the future. And that whole prophecy in Daniel 2.45 is about the coming kingdom of God that rules over all the kings and the nations of the earth. Interestingly, Jesus used the same phrase in Matthew 24, 6. In Matthew 24, 6, Jesus used the phrase about what must take place when he's referring to the events that would precede the end. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for these things must take place. And yet the end is not yet. There are things that must take place that will bring about the end. And this phrase, the things which must take place, will be used a number of times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 1, which is a critical place, the things that will take place after these things. Chapter 17, verse 1, the things that take place at the judgment of the great harlot. In chapter 22, verse 1, the holy city Jerusalem, the things that take place there. These are things that must take place in the future. In other words, these things that must take place soon, yet future, is the whole book of Revelation. It's revealing to us what will, what must, and it's really fascinating that John would use that kind of language and the biblical writers use this language of what must take place, not what could take place, which just reminds you who's governing the whole thing. It must happen this way. God is in charge of this. It's the whole book. So let me give you just an overview here of these things that must take place. Just a quick overview, all right? We're not going to spend all day in this. We could, but we won't. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Here you find a virtual outline of the whole book. I mean, he's actually told, therefore, write. What are you going to write, John? We're going to write the things which you have seen. And the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. These are all the things which must take place soon. The things you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. The things which you have seen, that obviously in this context it refers to what he has seen in the vision that begins in verse 9 that's even marked by what he saw in verse 12 twice and verse 13 again and verse 17 what he saw write this down it's the vision of the glorified Christ who is at work overseeing the church you're also to write down the things which are interestingly 
that present tense idea is found seven times in chapters two and three as he ends every letter to the churches with the same idea Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. These are the things that are. Interesting, you go to chapter 4. Turn there just for a moment. What's the first phrase of chapter 4? After these things. John was to write what he had seen. That's chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. The things that are, that's chapters two and three, the things that the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he's to write those things that happen, what? After these things. And chapter four, verse one begins, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place, what? After these things. Now, What's really interesting is when you trace that phrase after these things in the rest of the book of Revelation. It comprises significant seams and events that take place from chapter four all the way to the end. Meaning chapter four through chapter 22 is a series of the things which must take place soon after these things, after these things which are, after these things which are described in the Spirit's messages to the churches, chapter four to the end is the content of what happens after these things. You'll see it repeated again and again. So what, what do we find in Revelation 4 through 22? Well, you see chapters four and five is a throne room scene. You see the father on the throne and all of the angels surrounding him and he has in his hand a scroll. And what's in in the scroll? Well, we, we aren't told exactly what's in the scroll. There's some Old Testament connotations to that. But they're looking for someone who could break the seals, the wax seals on that scroll and begin by breaking them to unleash the contents of the scroll. And no one in heaven and earth under the earth, above the earth, anywhere could be found except the lamb. And the lamb then takes the scroll out of the hand of God the Father on the throne. He sits next to the Father on the throne and begins to break the seals. If you'll notice chapter six, verse one. I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. So chapter four And moving through chapter 6, 7, and 8, or up to chapter 8, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is all the breaking of the seven seals on the scroll. It's the breaking of the seals. It's the events that take place after these things, after the things of chapters 2 and 3. Notice chapter 7, verse 1. What does it say? How does it begin? After... This, it's singular, it's not these things, but it's singular. After this, and he shows the sealing of the 144,000. And then look at verse nine of chapter seven. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes. What you have in chapter seven is a kind of interlude between the seals and the next progression of the judgment of God in the trumpets. In fact, look at chapter eight. When the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God in the seven trumpets. So you see that phrase after these things in chapter seven, it shows you a transition is coming for more events that must take place after these things. So chapter eight begins the seventh seal activity that goes all the way through to chapter 11. Notice chapter 11 and verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, so this is the end of the trumpets. Chapters eight, nine, 10, and 11 are the trumpets. Here's the end of it. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying 
We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came. It speaks as if the wrath is finished. It came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. It's as if verses 15 to 19 is the culmination of the coming of Christ and it is. The seventh trumpet actually describes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the earth. But it doesn't do it in much detail. It doesn't show you hardly any detail about how the Lord returned. Which begins the content in chapter 12. And from chapter 12 all the way through to chapter 19 is a a more detailed description of how the seventh trumpet brings about the end. How does it bring about the end? Well, here we find in chapters 12 through 19, the seventh trumpet's judgments that begin Satan's war against God's people, the nation, Israel, it seems, and those who follow the child that come from Israel. In chapter 14, turn there for just a moment. It's an interesting statement here in chapter 14, verse 14. As we get kind of a, a symbolic description where we learn about the dragon, the beast who is Satan and the, the false prophet, the antichrist who comes and his prophet. We read about all of that and how they deceive the earth. And how does that end? Well, it ends in chapter 14, Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Well, how did he reap the earth? Another angel came out of the temple, verse 17, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's the final judgment of God given again. But it's a detailed description that the seventh trumpet judgment alluded to and it just gives you more insight into what happened there. But even here, how did this one, like the Son of Man, actually reap the earth. How does this all happen in greater detail? That's what chapter 15 begins. It's like a telescope. It's like a telescope. You have the seventh trumpet. It shows you the end, but let's pull out another set inside of that to show you more detail. And inside of that, let's pull out another set to show you even greater detail of how he then reaps the earth. And that's what you find in chapters 15 through chapter 18 is the very way the Son of Man then brings about final wrath. Interestingly, chapter 15 is the next place you find the phrase, after these things, signaling to us, here's another transition about those things which must come after these things, after the things of chapters 2 and 3, the things of the future. You see it in verse 5. After these things I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. This is the transition then to give you more detail. How does the son of man reap the earth? How does he do it? Chapter 16 starts another series of angels. These are seven angels and they're pouring out seven bowls of God's wrath and it's the seven bowls of God's wrath that are how the Son of Man actually reaps in judgment the earth. 
In fact, you'll find that. Each of the bowls, and, and it tells you this is a culmination of the finality of the wrath of God. It's greater detail. Eventually, that wrath centralizes on the satanic, false, religious, economic system known as Babylon that's described in chapter 17. And in chapter 17, they receive, Babylon receives the final wrath of God. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. What's the first phrase you see there? After these things. Meaning what? We're going to look at another detail. How did Babylon fall? Let's pull out another cylinder of the, the telescope. How then did Babylon fall? What are the details of its fall? Chapter 18 shows you that. And then chapter 19 comes. And it's not after these things I saw. How does 19 begin? After these things I heard. Babylon falls and we get all the great detail about that. And Babylon's fall then culminates with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth as he reaps the earth as, he is, as it's described earlier in chapter 14. As the seventh trumpet reaches its finality, chapter 11, chapter 19 describes how that is accomplished in detail. Very fascinating. And once the Lord returns, it says in chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel come down from heaven holding the key to the abyss. He binds the dragon and keeps him for a thousand years, after which he is released, deceives the nations. He is then slain by the Lord himself. And chapters 21 and 22 enter in the new heavens and the new earth. So essentially what you have in the book of Revelation, it's the things which must take place. It's the things that John saw of the glorified Christ who's going to govern everything. That's chapter one. It's the things which are what the Spirit is saying to the church right now. And it's the things that will happen after these things that usher in the end. The six seals that leash seven trumpets. The seven trumpets finish with the coming of Christ. Chapter 12 gives you more detail of how that trumpet finishes. To chapter 14, when the earth is reaped, how is the earth reaped? More detail given in chapters 15 through 18. Chapter 17, Babylon is the focus, but chapter 18 shows you the detail of how it's conquered that brings in 19 and the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's really just three main sections to the book. What you've seen in the Christ who governs, what is presently in the age of the church, what will take place after that that culminates in the return of Christ. That's not hard. That's not hard, is it? You got that. You'll be tested on it afterwards. But someone's gonna say, but wait a minute. John says these things should all take place soon. Soon. Now, if, if you, Pastor Brett, are saying that these things haven't taken place, then that means that there's been around 2,000 years since John said soon. And in most human beings' mind, that doesn't sound like very soon. Some, called preterists, it's a view called preterism, suggests that all of the book of Revelation, primarily, takes place in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that everything you read, especially from chapter 4 on, is the destruction of the temple. I, I don't think that's right for a number of reasons. If that's true, then the events that are described here are wildly symbolic. In fact, you have to redefine what all of these events mean to make it fit the historical scene of 70 AD. And it makes symbolism that is grand reflect something that is much smaller than the symbol. That's not how symbolism works. 
Symbolism is not showing you something smaller than the symbol, it's showing you something bigger. Also, the persecution of Christians described in Revelation doesn't fit the persecution that was taking place in 70 AD. Uh, When Nero was on the throne, the persecution that took place from Nero was really focused around the city of Rome. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, that was not a focus on the church. That was a focus on unbelieving Israel. It doesn't describe the kind of persecution that the book of Revelation describes. And furthermore, the situation of the churches described in the book of Revelation would be very different in 70 AD as they are described here. For example, the church in Ephesus would have been a very young church established by the Apostle Paul and it was a very strong church from what we have learned from a number of the New Testament epistles. And yet by Revelation 3, 2 and 3, particularly chapter 2, it's a very weak church who has left its first love. That doesn't describe the church in Ephesus in the 60s. The church in Laodicea, the whole city of Laodicea was actually wiped out by an earthquake in 60 AD. If you try to take a city that was destroyed in 60 AD and compare it to the account that you find in Revelation 3 that describes it as a very wealthy, prominent church and city, there's no way it could recover during that kind of time to reclaim that kind of prominence. It just doesn't describe the churches of that period. Furthermore, writers 40 years to 100 years after the writing of this letter, after John, actually say that John wrote this during Nero's successor, Domitian, not during the reign of Nero. They actually say that, that he wrote during the persecution of Domitian. So it is not likely from the contents of the book, church history, and what we see, that Revelation is talking about something that happened in the past. So soon doesn't necessarily mean soon from John's own vantage point. Have you ever thought about what the Bible says when it describes the return of Jesus Christ in terms of timing? What did we learn last week in Matthew chapter 25? Campbell taught us in Matthew 25 that the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents was all about how well are you stewarding your gospel responsibilities for the kingdom in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be like those virgins who are ready right now as if the Lord should return now. You should be stewarding the wealth that the Lord has given you in the gospel as if the master could come back at any time and find you responsible. Matthew 24, 42. Watch, therefore, you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. What does that mean? He could come at any time. We're not waiting for anything else to happen before the events of his return happen. 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. Isn't that interesting? He says that in 1 John. The same author of the, of the book of Revelation says, it is the last hour. You know what? It's been the last hour since John. It's the last hour before the final age, isn't it? This is the last hour, and it's been the last hour for a long time. Just to say it's the last hour says, you better be ready The clock is about to strike and the new hour, the new age is about to come. Or even further, just turn back to the left for a moment to 2 Peter. I want your eyes on this one. 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, a description of the coming of the Lord. Verse 3. Know this first of all, 2 Peter 3.3. Know this first of all, that in the last days which is this last era of human history before the Lord returns. Mockers will come with their mocking, following their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What are they saying? Soon doesn't sound like soon. That's what they're saying. Soon doesn't sound very soon. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. 
but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. What is he talking about? He's talking about what does soon mean? That's what he's talking about. What does soon mean? You think it doesn't sound very soon, but to God it's very soon. In light of eternity, it's very soon. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come, how? Like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. How will it come like a thief? Do you know when the thief comes? No. That's just the point with the thief. You don't know when he's coming. So what should you do? Act as if he could come soon. Even Peter says, here's what soon means. Soon is in the eye of the divine beholder. And in light of God's plans, every time he talks about the return of Christ, you are to live as if it could happen imminently, soon. That's how the New Testament almost always talks about the return of Christ. So what's the purpose of this book? To show what must, by divine authority, over which God will ensure that they happen, just exactly as he describes it, what will take place soon in regard to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this book's purpose is, so you'll know. You say, well, if I'm not going to be there, let's say the church is not in this, why do I have to know these details? Again, remember, knowing the future does what for your confidence in the present? What do you worry about? Nothing. What does it do to your stability? There's every reason in the world to say, well, is is God really going to be just? All this sin is taking place. All this persecution. Is God really going to deal with this? The book of Revelation says, let me show you. You know, he doesn't have to show us this. He's so gracious to unfold all of this so you'll know and so you rest in it and say, I don't have a thing to worry about in this world. That's the purpose. Number four, let's talk about the author of Revelation. Back in Revelation 1, you see the author. The source is Jesus and the Father. The purpose is to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And notice how he communicates it. He communicates it by his angel to his bondservant, John. There's the divine communicator, God, the Father. He sent as if he divinely commissioned apostello, like the word for apostle, he divinely sends the angel, which means that we also have a divine communicator, not just divine author, but a divine communicator, the angel. And the angel signifies, that's an interesting word. Never in the New Testament does the word signify mean to describe something by a symbol, but in literature outside of the New Testament, sometimes it does. And you will find that the book of Revelation is probably one of the most intensely symbolic books. Nobody denies that. By the way, I I listen to a lot of people who criticize those who take a literal grammatical approach to the book of Revelation. They say, you can't do that because there's so many symbols. And I, I say, well, wait a minute. No one who promotes a literal grammatical historical approach to the Bible denies that there are symbols. We all know there are symbols. And I just want you to be confident in this. Those symbols are not hidden from you. They most often are referring to things in the Old Testament so that you will clearly see what they referred to. It's not trying to hide anything. So the angel isn't giving code language. He's summarizing the Bible to John. Now, which John is this? This is the human author who receives this from these angels. And by the way, let me say this about the angels before I get to John. Angels are mentioned 64 times in the book of Revelation. I heard a lot about angels here. Angels were used, we know it says in Acts chapter seven and Galatians chapter three, they were used to communicate the law to Moses. Now they're being used to communicate the final revelation of God to John. Angels take a very prominent place here. 
But you do see the human instrument. That's his bondservant, John. John's like you. John's like me. He's a servant of the Lord. He's a slave of Christ. He's, he's an instrument in God's hands. He needs little introduction. He doesn't have to give a lengthy introduction of himself. It's John. Well, which John? Well, what John do you think it is? Have you been reading the Bible? He doesn't have to have any introduction. In fact, listen to this. Within 50 years of the Apostle John's life, Justin Martyr lived around 135 A.D., 40, 50 years beyond John. That's not very long, is it? Here's what Justin Martyr said. There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter the general and in short the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. Forty years after John, one of his disciples say it was John, the one you think it is, the apostle. It took 300 years before anybody ever denied that John the apostle was the writer of this book. It's John, the one who leaned against him at the table, the one who recorded an entire gospel about the humiliation of Christ, gets to write an entire book about the exaltation of Christ. And so he gets to see this. He gets to see it. All those things that should soon take place were given to John. What's our human author? Let me give you a fifth insight to the preface of Revelation. I know what time it is, I'm hurrying. Fifth insight. Let's talk about the nature of Revelation. The nature of Revelation. Notice verse two. He testified, John testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Testified is the word that we get the word martyr from. Not that John was killed for writing this, but he is giving a personal witness that he is willing to stake his life on. He's testifying to it. It's the testimony of John. It's also the word of God. It's the word that comes from God. It's the message that comes divinely from God. So it has divine authority. It has complete accuracy. And it's also the testimony of Jesus, which means it's the testimony or the witness as if Jesus is on the witness stand and Jesus is doing the testifying. It's the testimony that comes from Jesus, which shows its authenticity It's not only authoritative as the word of God, it's also authentic. It is testified to by the one who will actually implement it all. Chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus sent his angel to testify to these things. Verse 18 of chapter 22, Jesus testifies to everyone who hears the prophecy of this book. Chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus testifies, I am coming quickly. Who's the one testifying? Jesus. Trust it. That's the nature of the revelation. It's the testimony of John. It is the word that comes from God. It is the testimony that comes from Jesus. Let's finish with one more. A sixth insight into revelation that we get from the preface. The benefit. What's the benefit of the book of Revelation? Very clearly, verse three. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the first of seven statements of blessing in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Revelation 16, 15, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20 verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Revelation 22.7, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Verse 14 of 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to eat of the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Seven times, which is not inconsequential, and we'll unpack that a little bit more next time. We're told blessing comes to those who embrace this book. Spiritually profound, joyful satisfaction comes to those who read. And read here has the sense of you've sat in a church service and heard it read. It's a public reading, which means those who are reading and studying the book are blessed. Don't miss a Sunday, right? You'll be blessed to come and sit under the reading, the preaching, and the teaching of the word. It refers to the proclamation of this book. Reading, obeying. In Revelation 2 through 3, you will hear it seven times. He who has an ear, let him... What does that mean? We all have ears. But some people have ears and don't hear. So make sure that you hear with spiritual ears. And what does that mean? It means to obey or keep it. In fact, in the way this is phrased in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, to hear it, to hear it, and to keep it are connected together. Hearing and keeping, hearing and obeying go hand in hand. We know that to be true. Remember Jesus' statement in Luke 8, 21? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Romans two thirteen, It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. James 1, 22, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely what? Whatever we find in this book, if you don't handle it with application to the steadiness of your soul, you're not keeping its message. Guard it. Do it. Listen to it. This should impact you. Let me slip in a seventh, all right? And I'll finish with this. I got it. I'll I'll be quick. The time is near. Here's the timing of Revelation. He says it again. The time is near. This is a different phrase than he uses in verse 1. It's not chronos kind of time like time on a clock. It's kairos time like a season or an epoch. The season of this revelation is near. Which again, that's exactly how the Bible says we're to approach this content. We're not to be forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's coming. James 5.8, be patient, strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is near. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The fact that Jesus could come at any moment keeps you prayerful, obedient, holy, watchful. This is it. This is the final era before the end. So we're to seek the present ultimate blessing that comes to those who are in Christ and anticipate his return. That's what this book is all about. We're to know the spiritual satisfaction, the thrill that comes when you know that the end entail, all that the end entails, and it provides you with an amazing kind of steadfastness now. So what is the right response for the bondservants of Jesus Christ to the divinely inspired unveiling of how the world will soon be completed by Jesus when he comes back? Be encouraged, and as we will hear in Revelation 2 and 3, to him who overcomes is all the blessing that comes in the new heavens and the new earth. We have a lot to anticipate as we study the book of Revelation together. 
And that's just the preface. Next week, we'll get into the introduction. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for our time in your word. Again, we pray that the lingering impact of this book will cause us to love Christ even more, to follow him more fervently, to see our life in light of the fact that he is coming and could come at any moment. There's so much involved in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And it should settle us, make us confident, happy, satisfied people. So I pray for those in the room who, if the Lord's coming were to begin today, they would not be found in Christ. I pray you would awake their souls to see the benefit of following our Savior. And I pray that you will cause the hearts of those who are your bondservants now because of the work of Christ that has been applied to their heart. I pray that you will settle their souls. You'll give them confidence. Confidence in you. It rests in you. You have it all wrapped up. We don't have anything to worry about. We're to live resilient, confident, quiet, steady lives. Lord, let that be the effect on your people. And let us long for Jesus even more. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand.